All right, guys, we're back with our teaching in the book of Revelation. Now, the last time we were here, we were talking in Revelation chapter 18, but there is a combination of Revelation 18 and chapter 17, and it basically deals with the destruction of Babylon. Now, sometimes this can be somewhat uh, confusing when you look at 17 and 18, dealing with the destruction of the harlot and the destruction of Babylon, when in reality it's talking about the same thing. In chapter 17, we have the destruction of the harlot. That is the one world religious system that, that is primarily centered in Babylon to which Babylon, that is the Antichrist, was using the one world religious system to gain power. But as it came, as it came out to be, when he did attain his power, God put it in his heart to destroy the one world religious system centered in Babylon. So therefore we have the destruction of religious or ecclesiastical Babylon. That is 17. Now chapter 18 dealt with the destruction of political Babylon. And this is the destruction of the physical capital of the antichrist, which will be in Babylon. And this center will be destroyed physically while the Antichrist is off to war. And so what we saw is that while the Antichrist had gathered himself unto the uh, region of Petra to destroy all of the Jews, he wanted to kill all the remaining, of, remaining Jews. This is when the scripture says in Revelation that the three evil spirits went out uh, from the mouth of the frog and the dragon and things of that nature to draw them into a place for battle. So. As he prepares for battle, two instances, the destruction of the Jews and later will be the coming of Jesus in the cloud. That's what we're going to talk about. OK, but as he prepares for battle, he's gone away from the capital city. Some of his enemies gather against the cities, moved by God himself and destroy Babylon completely. So this is the will of God. So that's 17 destruction of uh Ecclesiastical Babylon, religious, 18, the destruction of political Babylon, the literal physical Babylon, which we know today will be Southern Iraq. Now, as we move to the events of the destruction of Babylon and we prepare to go into chapter 19, we move unto the coming of Jesus Christ. Because if you recall, and I don't want to get into a lot of details about this, but there is the instance of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar had this dream with himself being the head of gold and continuing down to be silver and bronze and iron and iron mixed with clay, things of that nature. Remember that which was representative of the Gentile kingdoms, especially the Gentile kingdoms that would exercise authority over Israel. Because remember, the whole idea is that one day Israel will be the capital of the entire world. It will be the greatest country of the entire world when the Messiah comes to reign. But until then, it will be ruled 
by certain Gentile powers, okay? And in that final dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, he saw this rock coming out from heaven and striking the, the statue on the toes and exploding the whole thing and this rock becoming a great mountain, which is a symbolic of a kingdom. This is symbolic of the return of Jesus Christ. So this is what we prepare ourselves for in chapter 19, the fulfilling of that vision that Nebuchadnezzar actually saw and we know that Daniel interpreted the return of Jesus. But before Jesus returns, a few things must take place first. So what we are going to see in chapter 19 is basically going to be divided into three main divisions, three main divisions. The first division would be the marriage of the lamb and his bride, which is Christ and the church. Okay. And then the second thing that we're going to see is the actual coming of Jesus Christ on the clouds. And once we see the coming of Christ on the clouds, we're going to finally move into the coming of Christ and the destruction of the antichrist and his armies. So that's going to be basically the three waves that we'll see in chapter 19. So without any further, Let's just go into chapter 19, verse one. After these things, I heard something like the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality and he has avenged the blood of his bond servants. So the first thing we see is, notice we're still moving in a consecutive order. Babylon has been destroyed. Spiritual Babylon, the great harlot, as well as political Babylon. And from that destruction, we have an anticipation for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his reign. So in that anticipation for the, because of the judgment of the harlots, and he's going to talk about why, because she is just, she's corrupted the world with her immorality. And that is spirit. That's not so much talking about fornication, because remember, we're talking about an ecclesiastical system. So it's more, it's more so talking about idolatry, spiritual immorality. Now, no doubt about it, fornication and freedom of, of immorality, that is physical immorality, is somehow sanctioned and ignored, permitted under this system. But the idea that the scriptures are talking about here is the corruption by worshiping of another false God. All right. And that's the idea. But anyway, so it says, Hallelujah. So it's giving great praise to God and notice it said salvation, glory, and power it is looking forward to the reign of Christ. It is looking forward to the destruction of Jesus's enemies, even God's enemies. And this will make ready for Jesus's reign. So there is anticipation in these verses. And then in verse number two, it talks about how when God does judge, he judges and he judges in righteousness. Now this is important. This is an important concept to remember because a lot of times, and I don't want to get into it, but my mind is almost pushing in that direction. 
When people look at the actions of God, namely in the Old Testament, remember when Israel was coming out of Egypt and they were coming into the promised land, all of the destruction that was sanctioned and commanded by God, destroy them all, destroy them all. And sometimes people want to look at God and say, he seems angry in the Old Testament, but in Jesus, he seems a God of peace and love. God is the same. He does not change. And whenever God does say or brings about judgment or whenever God brings about destruction, he always brings about destruction and judgment according to his nature. That is in righteousness. So whenever God does judge, he has judged rightly because whoever were the recipients of the judgment, they deserved it. They earned it. And we know that the Antichrist, Babylon, deserved it. We know that Canaan, I'm back at the Old Testament now, they deserved it because notice in Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, it enumerates the sins of these Canaanites. And even God thinks ahead of time in Genesis chapter 15 when he was talking with Abraham and God was saying that the sins of the Amorites were not yet ripe for judgment. So God, whenever he does finally judge, he judged righteously. But anyway, moving on, we don't have time for that. And it talks about the judgment of the great harlot, the spiritual system that God has judged Babylon as well. Remember 17 and 18 work together. Babylon as a whole has been judged by God. And notice that he has avenged the blood, avenged the blood of his bond servants. Remember we told you earlier that many of Christians will be put to death. All, all related back. Remember, first of all, the harlot, that is the religious system in Babylon would kill many of the saints. We saw that in chapter 17. Also in chapter 13, what do we see concerning the Antichrist? Whoever would not receive the mark of the Antichrist, the mark of the beast, they themselves would be put to death. They would not be allowed to participate in the economic system. So whether it is the harlot or whether it is the Antichrist himself, many of God's people will be put to death because of these systems. Okay. So what do we see now? A celebration. There is vindication. Remember in Revelation 6, when many of those saints, we had a preview, a preview of many of those saints who were killed by such system. Remember what they said? How long, O Lord, holy and true, Will you not avenge our blood upon those upon the earth, those people who killed them? So now we see a celebration. Why? Because this vengeance is now taking place and it's in the process of taking place. It's not, it's not complete yet. It's in the process. So let's continue. And the second time, verse number three, they said, hallelujah. Her smoke rises forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. So what we see is continued praise. Notice the three hallelujahs. So, it, and remember, we know that hallelujahs is the highest praise that you can get. 
He says the smoke rises forever and ever. And it takes our mind to two things. So let me tell you about those very quickly. Number one, remember I said the Antichrist is off surrounding Petra, trying to destroy the remaining of the Jews in preparation for war. Remember that the battle of Armageddon, remember that? And so he is off what has happened. His enemies have come and surrounded Babylon, destroyed. So therefore we see what? The smoke arising forever and ever. And this place will never again have people living in it. And then the second thing we see is the 24 elders and the four living creatures. That takes us all the way back to chapter four. And we don't want to go all the way back there again. But to the throne room of God, surrounding the throne of God, whom God the Father sees on the throne, we know there were four living creatures and 24 elders. That four living creatures are angelic beings, cherubs or cherubim, okay? Highest orders of angels, cherubs. These are the four living creatures. The 24 elders are members of the, uh, 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 from men. They are from mankind, 24 men representative of the human race. And they are called elders and they all surround the throne of God. And they are now engaging in the worship again. So chapter 19 is the scene in heaven. It is a scene in heaven as everybody is shouting and praising God because of the destruction of Babylon, vindication of the saints. Five, and a voice came down, came from the throne saying, give praise to our God, all you his bond servants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, hallelujah for the Lord, our God, the almighty reigns. So basically it simply ends with this section, praise of God in heaven for the destruction of Babylon. And that's what we see. But another thing that I bring to your attention too. Notice that they keep saying our God, our God. And the reason for this emphasis, not simply on praise for God, but praise for our God, because it's setting a contradistinction between the Antichrist. Remember, the Antichrist has set himself up to be the God of the world. He is the son of Satan and he has now had declared himself to be God and him God alone. So the saints are now worshiping God in heaven saying, no, no, no. He is now in the process of being destroyed. That that's what we're about to see now, but his kingdom, that is the capital city of his kingdom, Babylon already been destroyed. And so we, the true God who has done that destruction of the antichrist kingdom is our God. So praise be to our God because he is the true God and not this false God on the earth making that claim. All right. So now let's move to the next section which will be the marriage of the lamb. Now, let me explain this very quickly. It is set, well, actually, Jewish custom is set in accordance to this particular theme. What I mean by is this, in the marriage, uh, the 
bride, the bridegroom, he's the number one, he's the main character, and the bride, actually like the second main, they're two primary characters, I guess I'll say it that way, but the bridegroom is always given more emphasis and more looking upon, even more so than uh, the bridegroom. So then the bride, I'm sorry, the bridegroom seems to garner more attention in the scripture. Even we see it more so here, but when the marriage actually take place, it's like two particular parts, two primary parts to it. First is the officiating marriage. In the officiating marriage, only a select few people are involved, will be witnesses and be at the wedding itself. Then after the wedding, you will have the wedding feast. Now it's the wedding feast that you'll have the great majority of people that will be there. And it's the wedding feast that goes on for several days. It is a, a lengthy celebration. All right. So now what we have here in verses seven through 10 is the actual officiating marriage of the lamb and his bride. The lamb is Jesus, the bride of Christ. We even know it even from Ephesians chapter five. The bride of Jesus is the church. That is New Testament saints, Jew and Gentile, New Testament Christians. Okay. And this is whom we see Jesus being officially married to in chapter seven through 10. So this is what is taking place in heaven. Now, the marriage of Christ to the church takes place after the judgment of the church. Now, when I say the judgment of the church, I don't mean that the church is going to be determined whether who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. The judgment of the church is basically the issue we see in first Corinthians chapter three and verse 16, when we receive the rewards, gold, silver, precious stones that would be rewarded by Christ or also in second Corinthians five and 10, when it says, for we all must stand before the judgment seat of Christ and be judged. That judgment seat is the Bema seat. This is a judgment for rewards. This is not a judgment to determine to go to heaven or hell, because first of all, all the saints are already in heaven when this judgment takes place. So it's not a he heaven or hell judgment. So, before the marriage of Christ to the church is the judgment. All of the saints will be judged for their deeds and you receive a reward. And that's when we get those particular crowns. And the Bible talks about crowns that the saints will be given. This takes place first. After this event, we will have the marriage of Jesus. And so that's when the church is dressed in her fine linen. That is, she is prepared for marriage to Christ after that. And she, and you'll see her now in these following verses dressed in beautiful, like the white dress you see the women in white linen prepared to be married to her husband. That is to Jesus, the Messiah. So now let's look at that marriage that takes place in heaven that will be seen, but be, be, uh, 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 all, the, all of the people involved in this way, involved in the sense of being able to see it, will be the saints who are in heaven alone, okay? In heaven alone. All right, but let's look at it. Let us rejoice and be glad, verse number seven, and give glory to him 
for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So now we see the instance of what is going on. Now you see continued rejoicing. Why? It's time for the marriage between the lamb. You know who that is, Jesus, the bride. You know who that is, the church. Notice verse number eight and continuing. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So notice what it says. She is now given fine. Her clothing represents the righteous acts of the saints. The saints are already saved, but it's talking about the linen that is indicative of her acts. That is the works, which means that the judgment seat of the saints, that means the judgment seat of Christ, the saints have already stood before Jesus's judgment seats and have been judged. Jesus has given us our rewards and also he has clothed us in garments of white righteousness. And this is what we see talking about the righteous acts of the saints, the beamer seat of Jesus. Then he said to me, Right, because right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Let me finish reading the rest. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus and worship God for the testimony of Jesus. It's the spirit of prophecy. So after he's talked about the fine linen of the saints, he said, right, blessed. Notice there's a special blessing for those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. Now, without making a long to do about this, we see Jesus talking a number of times about this in the gospel. When Jesus was talking about blessed are those who will be invited to the wedding feast, because this was always a mindset of the prophets in the resurrection of the dead. There will be a great wedding feast. And Jesus would talk about that. The Pharisees would even talk about blessed are those who will eat with Abraham in that day, sit at the table with Abraham. That's what they're talking about. But the wedding feast, this is not taking place in heaven. That is the marriage supper. When you hear me say wedding feast, the marriage supper. That's what verse number nine is talking about. The marriage supper. The marriage supper takes place when Jesus comes back with all of the saints and then Jesus resurrects the Old Testament saints. You got to get that. Okay. Let me slow it down. Jesus will return back to the earth. This is what we call the second advent, the second coming of Christ. This is when Jesus prepares to set up his kingdom upon the earth. Okay. So he comes back. Now there are some things he's going to do first, destroy his enemies. But before we talk about destruction of his enemies, let's move beyond the destruction of the enemies. We'll get back to destroying the enemies at the latter part of this chapter. But after his enemies are destroyed, okay, Jesus does return from heaven. He returns with the uh, resurrected bodies, glorified bodies of the church. That's when Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 4, when the Lord, the dead in Christ, and we which are alive. We have physical, eternal, glorified bodies. He turns with the bodies of the church, 
but he also returns with the spirits. Notice I said the spirits of the Old Testament saints. They have not yet been resurrected, but Jesus returns with their spirits. Once Jesus returns, there will be a fulfillment of Daniel chapter 12 when the Old Testament saints will be resurrected. So therefore, the Old Testament saints, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of the Old Testament prophets, also all of the saints who died during the tribulation, that is after the church was raptured, during the tribulation, all those saints that got killed, they will be resurrected from the dead. Okay, so you got Old Testament saints are now resurrected. And then you have all of the all of the saints who died during um, the, the tribulation, inclusive of all of the Christians who are still alive when Jesus gets back. All right. They will celebrate the marriage of Jesus and the church. See, all of those different groups of people will celebrate the marriage of Jesus and the church that took place in heaven. They are now invited to the marriage feast or what is here called the marriage supper. And this will be a somewhat a longer celebration than what took place in heaven with the marriage ceremony. But nevertheless, because of the blessedness of being involved in this occasion, because these people are indeed saved and they will live for the full duration of the 1000 years and ultimately receive eternal bodies themselves. And for this reason, they are called and said to be blessed because those who are alive will continue to live and those who are dead, these are saints, will be resurrected in what we will call later, uh, you'll see this in John, I'm sorry, Revelation 20, the first resurrection. This was called the first resurrection. Okay. All right. So John is so moved by that until John falls at the feet of the angel who is giving him this particular message and he doesn't fall in awe; He falls in worship. And so the angel simply tells him, don't worship me. Worship is only allowed to God, to God. And the angel, so it's two things I want to bring about that. He says to God, and then he tells John that I'm one of your fellow servants of yours and your brethren and who hold the testimony of Jesus. So it's all about Jesus. It's all about speaking of glorifying Jesus. And so the, the angel therefore tells him simply worship God. Okay. Let's finish our final section in chapter 19. Now we come to the actual return of Christ. So I tell you what, let me give you a little background. When Jesus returns, he doesn't return exclusively immediately. Let me say it that way to Jerusalem. He returns to a place called Bothra. He returns to a place in the mountains of Petra, where the Jewish people have gone to this place to hide from the Antichrist as the Antichrist has gathered his armies in the Valley of Megiddo. And the Antichrist is using this as his last stand 
to finally get rid of all the Jews, to kill all the Jews. What happens? Jesus returns in the clouds of heaven with the saints of heaven, with all the saints of heaven, the saints are riding on white horses and so is the Lord and the Lord is dressed in his shining white garments. And when Jesus returns from heaven, he engages in war with the Antichrist army. Remember the Antichrist has gathered, remember the spirit of the, uh, of the, the, the frogs and the beast and all of these things and the dragon that is going out into all of the world to draw them into the valley of army. So it's great army out there. Jesus comes down from heaven with the sword of God and Jesus enters into a actual physical conflict. It is a beautiful thing. Remember in the book of John, well, just listen, in the book of John, when they came to get Jesus, and remember it, it was right after in the garden of Gethsemane, they came to arrest Jesus and Jesus asked those soldiers, whom do you seek? And when Jesus asked that question, they all fell to the ground. The, act, the idea is they were knocked to the ground. Jesus, that was the only time in scripture that we saw Jesus, that, that is in the, in the gospels, Jesus acted offensively. He acted in an offensive point. He never defended himself, but Jesus struck them because he wanted to make certain the scripture would be fulfilled that all those whom God had given to him, he wouldn't lose any of them, that they would strike the shepherd. The sheep would scatter, but the sheep's lives would still be preserved. So Jesus was protecting their lives. But notice he didn't do any permanent damage to them. He just simply let those soldiers know I can stop you if I want to. But in this scenario that we're getting ready for here is completely different. Now the game is on. Jesus returns from heaven with the sword of God. He walks through the army of men by the thousands and thousands and Jesus kills all of them. He doesn't kill some of them. He kills all of them. Thus you have a fulfillment. And just in case you think I'm incorrect about this, he fulfills Isaiah chapter 34. That is the one who comes from Bozrah and he fulfills Isaiah chapter 63, the slaughter of the nations. So therefore what we see happening here in Revelation 19 is a fulfillment of Isaiah 34 and Isaiah 63. And this when Jesus talks about in the return of the son of man in Matthew 24. So we just bring all of these scenarios together to let you see that when Jesus returned, that's why I said that in, uh, in, I believe it's in Isaiah 63, that when you, Jesus returns in white garments, but by the time the people begin to see Jesus, his garments are red all over. And they said, what's wrong? What happened to your clothing? Why are your clothing as if somebody has been in the great trough? Y'all remember how that works now. The wine press. Y'all remember wine press was this great bath where people go in and tread out the wine with their feet and stump them until the, the juice comes from the wine. And when the juice would come from it, a lot of times, depending on how many grapes, it'll get all in their clothing. But it is an, it is an exaggerated sense 
with Jesus. Jesus, the grapes here are not grapes of grapes, but they are grapes of men that Jesus has trotted upon and the blood has splashed his clothing. And by the time people see Jesus, his clothes are full of blood and they look at him and say, where have you been and what have you been doing? And Jesus responds and says, I have trodden the wine press of God. And now it's time for me to invite the birds to the feast of God, to feast on the birds of men. And those men and those people that Jesus have killed are the armies of the Antichrist. So, with all of that intro, let us now finish 11 through 21. So hopefully I don't have to do a lot of explanations as I've given you the picture. And I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. Now you see why the scripture says what it says. See, notice heaven is now open. White horse, Jesus is sitting on, he is coming back. Notice, faithful and true. That is, is the reason why I was calling Jesus faithful and true by that name. All that God said that he will fulfill in Christ, in the Messiah, he will fulfill. All that God said he would do, he would do. He would set up the kingdom, he will judge his enemies. He will judge the enemies of the Jews, those who are trying to kill and destroy the Jews, faithful and true to his word. And notice the tenor that is being set for us in righteousness. Remember what I told you about anything that God does, he is always right. That is the nature of God. He writing when he's doing it. Remember when I told you this destruction by Jesus, you ain't seen nothing. This little humble lamb stuff that people talk about. That's in the first coming of Jesus being an humble lamb. When Jesus returns, he returns as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He, you know, in righteousness, he comes to judge and what? Wage war. And I, want, I almost want to talk smack behind that. Jesus is not coming to, to have discussion. He is coming to fight. Amazing, isn't it? That's not the Jesus that most people like to talk about. But nevertheless, now let's continue in our Revelation study. His eyes are a flame of fire. You see his disposition? This is not the nice, lemmy Jesus. Eyes of flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. Diadems are royal crowns. They're not Stephanus. The crowns that we will wear are Stephanus. Crowns of overcomers, victor's crown. Jesus wears a crown that says, I'm a king and I'm a king of all kings, but we're a little premature diadems and on his name is written a name in which no one knows except himself. So he comes as an agent. Notice the, the flame of fire. Eyes being a flame of fire, that is always an indication of judgment. Notice we've already had the talking that he's ready to make war. So now it increases that eyes of flame, 
ready for judgment. The many crowns, he is the king of the world and Jesus has a unique name that the father has given him that nobody knows. Similar to what Jesus promised that he would give unto us. I think he's in the church of Thyatira. That's the promise that he made, but it's basically a name to all of God's people that those who overcome, who hold to Jesus Christ, they will have a unique name not known by nobody else except themselves. And Jesus has a name like that as well. Notice 13. Remember what I told you about this whole issue about Jesus coming in Bozrah and just killing and killing and killing. Now look at verse number 13. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. Two things. I don't have to do a lot of talking on that, do I? When he comes, now you see his clothing of what? At first his clothes were what? White and shiny. Now all of a sudden his clothes are bloody, dipped in blood. Now it takes you back to that scene that I just gave you guys earlier. He has torn up the Antichrist army, literally, physically killing them. And then John calls them the word of God. And this takes us back to John chapter one. Remember, it is John who is receiving this revelation in the book of Revelation from the angel, John, the apostle of Jesus Christ. It is the same John when God gave him uh, the word of God, the gospel of John. Notice how he referenced Jesus. In the beginning was the word, word was with God, and word was God. He speaks of Jesus' divine nature. That is, Jesus is God. So he basically gives that same idea. But how do you put it together? Who is destroying, killing the Antichrist and his armies? It is God himself, the Son of God. Okay, now verse 14. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Now, let me, let me just talk about this. It is often believed that when Jesus returns to earth and we see this war that is going on with the armies of the Antichrist, that the saints of God are engaging with Jesus in this great battle. But that's not true. What Isaiah said in his prophecies, when they questioned Jesus about this war, the reason why his clothes were so bloody, Jesus told them he was treading the wine press of God. You know what that means already? Squashing the grapes, that is squashing men, destroying men. But he said, and I looked and there was no one to help me. That is simply idiomatic way of saying, and I destroyed them all by myself. So what we have in Revelation 19 here, when we looked at the armies of God, notice what it said again, that they are clothed. Remember they got married and all of the saints we know had white, lint, white clothing, linen, white linen clothing. But notice it says when they had come along with Jesus at this time, their clothes are still white which means that when Jesus engaged, it just confirms what Isaiah said. Jesus fought alone. The saints of God did not engage in battle with Jesus. In other words, do you remember when Jesus, God said these words, he even said in the Psalmist, he spoke through, a, through the apostle Paul, <laughs> vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. And therefore, 
Jesus is truly repaying at this time. All right. But anyway, let's continue with our picture of Christ who is engaged in battle against the armies of the Antichrist. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it, he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So now, the sharp that comes from his mouth, that speaks of itself. Remember, Jesus is in battle mode. He's destroying and he's killing people. So that speaks for itself. And when it says he strike down the nations, the emphasis here is upon the Gentile nations, namely, even so, the armies of the Antichrist, because we know that, remember, two thirds of the Jews died during the tribulation. A third of the Jews remained alive and these third are saved. So no Jew will enter into judgment from Jesus. All those who will be judged will be Gentiles. But even so, particularly here, we're talking about the armies of the Antichrist. Now, that is not to say that Jesus would not judge others who are not in the armies of the Antichrist. Remember Matthew 25, I believe verse 31, Jesus gathers the remaining, the remainders of the Gentile world. Remember he said, like sheep on the right hand, goat on the left, and then you'll see the judgment for the remainder of the Gentiles. But here particularly, we're talking about the armies, Gentile armies, of the Antichrist who have now been destroyed by Jesus, all right? And it talks about that destruction. Remember, I talked about it enough already about how it's pictured as a wine press. You step in the wine press, the grapes go, mess up your clothing with all the grapes and stuff like that. Jesus trotting upon men, destroying men, the blood splashing his beautiful white garments and he himself now being full of blood. And that's the picture we have when it says he treads the wine press of the wrath of God. Okay. And it calls him now in anticipation. Notice what I said in anticipation after the destruction of his enemies, after the wedding feast, the supper of the lamb, wedding supper of the lamb. When Jesus begins to rule over all of the world from Jerusalem, Israel, he is now, he will be seated on the throne in Jerusalem, reigning as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now it is interesting. It's a King of Kings, Lord of Lords. What you have to understand is this, even though all Jesus would be ruling the entire world. Remember he said to his 12 apostles, you will be sitting with sitting on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And even David will one day be king over Israel once again. And also, so that is for, for Israel, there will be only Jews, only Jews ruling over Israel under Jesus. Now, remember, remember the rest of the world is a big world. Israel is just small, but the rest of the world is really large. This is when Revelation 20 talks about those who will be sitting on thrones as well. So this is distributed out the world. Some of the saints of God 
who were judged at the judgment seat of Christ. Remember, I told you about that, receiving rewards. Some will be rewarded as kings and others as lords. And Jesus will, be, will allow them to rule as kings over nations and things of that nature. But all of this will be under him. So as the old world order, back to Daniel again, and I don't want to get into all of that. The old world order with his kings have been destroyed by Jesus. He's king over those kings. And the new world order with kings under Christ, righteous kings under Christ, righteous lords under Christ. Jesus sits now in the throne of Jerusalem as king of all kings and lord of all lords. But anyway, let me finish it. Then I saw, verse number 17, an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid heaven, come assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his armies. Now that's clearly, that's, a, that's an easy picture. Remember, again, Jesus comes, it's, it's taking us back, it's taking us back. Kind of rewinding the tape a little bit. When Jesus is coming out of heaven, okay, sitting on the horse, his armies, sitting on the horses with him, the saints of God. Jesus will engage war alone. We dealt with that. And now we hear the call. Remember, we winded the tape back a little bit. The call to the birds of the air. That is like vultures and I don't know, what are these buzzers? Vultures and buzzers, like birds like that. And whatever bird will eat flesh, it's a call because Jesus is getting ready to kill them. That, that's what we see, the commanders, the kings, the mighty men, uh, the armies, the slave and the free. That's all it's about. What I've been telling you all along, that massive, massive army. Jesus kills them all. So therefore, once Jesus kills them all, their bodies are going to simply lay on the ground. And so what does the angel do with a mighty crowd, mighty cry? He calls to all the birds and says, hey, birds. You see all of these dead people feast on them, feast on them. Cause this is the supper of God prepared for you in a sense. All right. And that's basically what we see. So the armies of the antichrist, we see now being the birds, letting them know been destroyed feast on their dead remaining bodies. Now let us get to the, this is a part of all of this, this section, the third section, but it's a particular part of the third section, verses 20 and 21, that deals with the destruction of the Antichrist and the false prophet. Now, remember, we got the picture of, it's the picture all, all throughout, but in particular, the picture of the Antichrist in Revelation 13, he was called, remember, the beast. And then we got another picture of another beast. Remember that? And that was the prophet to the beast. That's the second part of chapter 13. So chapter 13 dealt with the Antichrist. 
the, the latter part of chapter 13 dealt with the false prophet to the Antichrist. The Antichrist, Satan's son, claims to be God. The false prophet comes and he does all of these miracles to try to convince people to worship the Antichrist as God. And it's the false prophet who causes the people, because of the Antichrist, to receive the 666 mark of the beast. So it's the false prophet who becomes like the high priest of the Antichrist, okay? And so now we are going to deal with these, the destruction of these two people in verses 20 and 21. So now let's talk about the destruction of the Antichrist and the false prophet. And the beast was seized, Antichrist, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped the image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Okay, so basically we're talking about the destruction, the killing of uh, the Antichrist and the false prophet. So, 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 so let me deal with that. Let me deal with that. The beast was seized. And when I say killing, I'm being a little loose with my terminology. So allow me to be a little more precise in accordance with the context. The beast was seized. That is the Antichrist and the false prophet. That is, remember, I just told you all about that. The false prophet. And notice they were thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. Remember. All right. Slowing it down a little bit. There is hell, hell, remember, hell is a place for the destruction of the spirit and the soul. I've talked about that in earlier videos. Hell, so, so look for that, those videos about what is hell, what is hell. But hell is a place, in other words, let, let's be okay, a person dies right now. Their body goes wherever it goes, but the soul and spirit of that person goes into hell, Gehenna, and that soul and spirit is tormented. We see that in Luke chapter 16. The lake of fire is reserved for body, soul, and spirit. That is, it is, it is for the eternal, for the resurrected body. So basically what we're seeing is the death of the Antichrist and the death of the false prophet. We see a death of both of those guys in that sense. And we know for the, the, the Antichrist, there will be a death. Now, whether or not there'll be a death for the false prophet or not, we won't know. Let me explain to you why. In Isaiah chapter 14, it talks about the death of the Antichrist that when they say the souls of the spirit of the dead will arise and see the dead and see the antichrist when he comes into hell that is the grave hell the grave and they say unbelievable you the greatest of all you who are greater than all men who destroyed so many men. How is it that we see you now dead? You now dead. So, so the point is the Antichrist 
will die and he does go to hell. But in a, remember, the lake of fire is reserved for body, soul, and spirit. Therefore, the Antichrist will be resurrected from the dead. When Jesus kills him, at some point, the Antichrist will be resurrected into an eternal body, body, soul, and spirit, eternal, and then he'll be cast into the lake of fire because only the lake of fire is for body, soul, and spirit. Hell, Gehenna, the fire, is only reserved for soul and spirit. So the Antichrist will be killed by Jesus and then Jesus at some point will resurrect him and cast him into the lake of fire. All right. Now, we don't know. It, it's unclear whether or not the false prophet will be killed and then resurrected, which I'm thinking he probably will be. But in order for the false prophet to be put into the lake of fire, he too has to have eternal body, soul and spirit. So therefore, he had the, the false prophet as a man has to go through some form of regeneration. He has to be given the eternal body and with the soul and the spirit so that he can be put into the lake of fire. Okay. So my whole point is, I know it's clear in scripture, the anti, I'm sorry, the antichrist. Yes. will be killed and resurrected and placed into the lake of fire. We don't know whether the false prophet will be kill first or whether the false prophet would simply be transformed. In other words, let me make you understand it really good. Remember what the, the whole point of the rapture is. When, when Jesus comes in the clouds, first Thessalonians chapter four, what happens to those who are alive? Remember Paul said in first Corinthians 15, we will be instantly transformed and receive eternal bodies. Okay. He can also do that with the false prophet. He doesn't have to kill him. He can instantly, just like he did the Christians, transform him and give him an eternal body and now send him into the lake of fire. Okay? So, but both of them, the first two people will, who will be in the lake of fire, the first two jokers, period, will be the false, will be the beast and the beast, the uh, uh, antichrist, and the false prophet. They'll be the first two people in the lake of fire. Only two. And they'll be the only two in the lake of fire for a thousand years. Nobody's going to join them there until after a thousand years. Okay. All right. So that's that. Notice it said verse number 21 and the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and the birds were filled with the fire. Notice they were killed with the sword. It didn't say that they went into the lake of fire. They were simply killed. Their flesh bodies were killed. Birds ate their flesh. Their soul and spirit went into hell. Gehenna, the place where the rich man, remember the story, rich man and Lazarus, the place where the rich man went, where he says it's hot. They went to hell. So the antichrist false prophet went into the lake of fire. That is the eternal punishment forever and ever. The other men in the armies, got killed by Jesus and their souls and spirit went to hell later to be resurrected on judgment day, revelation chapter 20. And then finally 
along with all the wicked dead, these armies would then follow the Antichrist a thousand years later and would be sentenced to the lake of fire. All right, next time we come together in Revelation chapter 20, we'll talk about the, the things that, that will happen right before Jesus sets up his kingdom, well, some of them anyway, and then we'll prepare for the setting up of the kingdom and then finally the great judgment day.